Yes. Any Key and Peele fans here? It's okay to say you are. I know this is church. I am. Uh, I, I like them too. Um, a lot. I love that video for two reasons. It kind of reflects what we were talking about last week in terms of doubt, not necessarily being our unbelief, but more being the things that we don't want to do that God's calling us to do. I also like the video because it's funny. And humor is a way of alleviating tensions, particularly in conversations about money, wealth, and class is what we're talking about. In many ways, that video shows um, uh, how we feel about money talks. We kind of want to run from it. We want to run from it, just like they did in that video. And, and, and the question is, why is that? Why do we love not liking money talks? Uh, why do we want to run from them, especially when it's a topic that is repeated over and over in Scripture? There's a belief that there's about 2,300 verses on Scripture. I also think there's an urban legend that people say that Jesus talked about money more than anything else. Uh, I, I think he talks about it a lot, but a lot of times he uses money illustratively, like fishing and farming, to talk about greater kingdom principles. Jesus talks about the kingdom more than anything else, but he does talk about money a lot. He talks about unsuspecting givers, uh, compassionate givers, good Samaritan. Uh, you have phony givers, like the, the rich young ruler or the master who tears down his barns to build bigger ones to store all his wealth. We talk about transformed givers like Zacchaeus. It, it's talked about a lot, and Jesus does talk about money's ownership over our heart. It's like the only other quote-unquote lowercase God named in the Gospels. So he does talk about it, but I do want to debunk the myth that sometimes you hear a lot of fundraisers say that he talks about it more than anything else. And it's like, no, Jesus talks about the kingdom more than anything else. Uh, but he does talk about it a good amount, and we don't talk about it a lot, particularly when we're with others in fellowship or discipleship. It's not a conversation I have a lot with others compared to other conversations. We don't talk about our money struggles, our temptations, about our debt, about our spending, about even desires to give. It's a little bit, quote unquote, taboo. Imagine if, imagine if we'd like to have conversations within the church body. Imagine if I was like, you know what, let's have these questions come up on the screen. God is a giver of the good gifts, uh, so let's talk about your salary. Let's talk about it with each other. What's your salary? Please include any secondary income, by the way, rental income, retirement, uh, subsidiary stuff, your little side gigs. And how much of your salary do you give to the poor? You can give percentages or just tell us, you know, the amounts. I want to hear the thousands. And then what steps are you going to give to increase your giving? And then what, imagine if I threw in another verse up there like Acts 2, you know, they devoted themselves to the disciples' teaching or the apostles' teaching. Let's fast forward to 44. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Imagine I was like, we could talk about this. I mean, they talked about it in the early church. Why not us? How would that conversation go over? How would that go? Probably wouldn't, right? Why are conversations about finances so touchy in the church? Any thoughts? I'll take some popcorn time. You can just popcorn a thought. Comparison. That's a great, yeah, comparison. Giving? Yeah, like, am I giving, am I not giving, and should I be giving, etc.? What is giving to the church, to somewhere else? What is the tithe? Any other reasons why it's so touchy in the church? Perception? Judgment? Yeah. Totally. Yes, a lot of mistrust. I do want to name that. I, I didn't have that in my notes, but I, that, it, that creates a lot of 
lack of surrender or lack of trust when you see distrust in how monies are used. Mm-hmm. Idolatry of the heart, yeah. Any other thoughts? Idolatry of the heart uh, means that you're making money your God, whether you name it or not. You could be hands up in the air, but you're like truly. You find we worship money because we believe it gives us freedom. In fact, my second favorite priest says that. We worship money because we believe it frees us. Financial freedom is in the social vernacular, right? It's like, are you financially free? And if you're not, then you're in debt. Fear? Yes, fear of running out of money. Fear of being enslaved to the system. Fear of others taking your money. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do to some degree, and this may be an oversimplification, but not by much, that we do think money in many ways serves us and gives us freedom. Uh, and I struggle with it as well. This isn't about me versus you. I mean, even when I talk about getting, there are times, at times, where I can be self-conscious uh, because I can unhealthily project you making correlations to the tithe and my income, especially in a small church like this where, like, I'm one of the primary expenses of the church. You know, I can, I can be un- uh, uncomfortable about it, especially when I have buddies who aren't in the church that love to make fun of me all the time. Like, there's Andy working two hours a week. Give him money so he can get a new car. <laughs> and I can project that on others, um, but not as much. I mean, I know we're given to God and God provides for me in many ways. But for all of us, there's something about money and freedom and comfort and secrecy and mistrust and surrender that that is an issue for us and I, I really like our passage today it's really short and it's not a generosity message per se that's what I like about it it's more of a an opportunity or a call to have somewhat of an internal examination of how we view ourselves with our money it's an opportunity to take stock of how we how we think about money and really ourselves with money and as Carrie stated we are in the book of James stating the obvious Uh, And what I want to recall is that the recipients of James, this is the early church, which is mainly Jewish Christians and maybe some Gentile converts who've converted to the way. And this is at a time early on the church, I believe, where uh, they've experienced this initial rust of persecution, likely after the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8. And these are people on the run. These are already people who don't have much. Uh, if you're not a Roman during Roman rule, you're being taxed. Likely, most of you are being taxed into slavery at some point. I mean, some people can pay their taxes, but it's way more than taxes that we talk about. What they're experiencing in that time will be likely what, more than we'd ever experience, even knowing that there's national talks about the debt limit and whether they can raise it and an impending global recession. It still won't be like what they experienced, in my humble opinion. I mean, at that time that they're fleeing their homes with nothing in their hands, already taxed, overtaxed, there's also notably a famine that happened in the Palestinian-Syrian area at that time. It's like a triple whammy. And at the same time, what does James write? What does James write? That's what I'm going to read our scripture today. It's James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. One of the gifts of taking our time is that we don't have to read that much. Last year we did the book of Matthew. This year we're doing the book of James. It's shorter. So we're going to spend time in a a little bit. And James writes this. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. 
since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. That's God's word for us. Now, there's pastoral genius written here. James, before he gets into any part about the rich hoarding wealth and talking more about how the poor are living more freely, he gives an opportunity for people just to take internal examination like I talked about. Before he talks about generosity or the sin of greed, he's just having us take part in this almost seemingly random proverb early on in the book. And he's writing again to many uh, poor Jewish Christians on the run, but he's also, this is a circulating letter, uh, so it's, it's, it's also reaching those in, in the early churches that may have some money. So his audience is likely poor Christians and some few rich Christians. This isn't about like those evil people in the world. This is a message for us in the church. And the main idea is this, that will inform a follow-up question, is before we talk about money, we need to take stock in how we view ourselves in money. Before we can have money talks, we need to take internal stock of how we view ourselves with our money, quote-unquote, our money. We must consider how we view the money we have or conversely the money we do not have and how that makes us feel or makes us see ourselves or believe how others see us. We must understand our spiritual disposition to our financial situation. That's what we're looking at today is what is our... How do we view ourselves in money? What is our spiritual disposition to our financial situation? And the first point, I mean, it's clear. He is addressing the poor. James 1.9 says the poor must hold fat. I'm sorry, the believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. What is the spiritual disposition? The poor and those with much less, this is our first point, must hold fast to their spiritual inheritance in Christ. That the poor in our midst must hold fast to the spiritual inheritance, their richness they have in Jesus. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Take pride. Does that mean like we brag about our impoverished conditions? And most of that, be honest, most of us aren't in impoverished conditions. I just want to name that reality. It's not about boasting, but it's an opportunity that James writes to these early Christians, most of the majority of them, to, to take joy in the fact that they're free to value what God values. Here's a note. God's major concern is not our worldly wealth. It's not. God's major concern is not our worldly wealth. Instead, God's concern is that our deepest desires and our deepest callings and our aim would be to take hold of our spiritual position in Christ's kingdom. That is the dignity of being sons and daughters of God, citizens in heaven, co-laborers in Christ. We find hope and comfort as participants in the glorious kingdom. The poor certainly find hope and comfort as participants in God's kingdom. This is ours to share, but James is telling the poor among us to live with the nobility that God gives in a world that says you have no dignity. Or little to no dignity. Continue to trust the God who has provided and continue to provide. The dependence of the poor almost certainly outshines that of the modern church. 
particularly here in the West. The dependence on God of the poor outshines us. It does. They do. The poor are our models. More than anyone else, I believe they're a class that models God dependence. They're our models of true fellowship. If we ever spend time with the poor, if you've ever taken an opportunity to serve the poor, and we used to do that when we used to be Flood North County in the morning, we would have bagels. We watched them being a people who shared everything in common and had no and shared everything in need. That acts too. They would bring people to bring food. Like, oh, these bagels are free. I'm going to tell Barb or Tom or Susan. And then you'd see them coming up the next week, arm in arm. The poor are our models. They're free from the world's modus of operandi. They have freedom and space to, to live without pretense. And at the same time, they are likely the most polite people you will meet. Always gracious, always thankful. There are models of being available. They have time to give. If you read the E! News this week, when I was in Africa, I was told by many, as I was rushing around, many who had significantly less than I do, you Americans have watches but no time. We in Africa have no watches but all the time we need. There is a freedom that comes from the detachment of the machine that is modern economics. The poor among us must take hold of their spiritual inheritance, their richness in Christ. It, it, it doesn't go without saying, to give a theological overview, I won't go too long, that God has a unique heart for the poor, the downtrodden, and the outcasts. We did that series last Advent, remember, Quartet of the Vulnerable. Uh, Deuteronomy 68.5 says that God is a father to the father, fatherless, a defender of widows, Deuteronomy 10 says that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Does God love everyone? He also has an ever-deepening, unique concern for the poor and the downtrodden. He does. Secondly, God's people are, are meant to manifest God's concern, to, to imitate God's concern for the poor. I mean, that... that Deuteronomy verse says, and you're to love those who are foreigners. In fact, it's the denial of the outcasts and the poor that are the frequent denunciation of the prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. We're going to read that in Amos, hopefully during Lent. That's one. One, God cares for the poor. Two, God, we're called to call for the poor. Three, and this is not known as much, uh, but in Old Testament tradition, a lot in the Psalms and Isaiah, obviously you see it in the Gospels, the poor is identified with the pious or righteous. And many times, theologically, the poor, the physically poor, are identified with the righteous. Now, why is that? Why is economic lack and or persecution related to religious devotion? Well, the poor put, their, they put forth their neediness. They put forth their oppression as the basis for their need for God's deliverance. The poor commonly put forth their impoverished conditions as a basis for the need for God's deliverance. Psalm 40 says it this way, But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Save me. They put forth their neediness as a basis for God's deliverance. We need to take hold of that. We need to dog ear dog, dog ear that. Dog, is that what it is? Dog ear. 
Okay, footnote that. That's the third one, poor commonly associated with the righteous. Fourth one, and this is found in later Jewish writings and certainly in the Gospels, is that the wealthy and powerful people tend to be identified with the wicked. Uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is particularly Beatitudes, influenced by these later traditions. But the, the, the wealthy among us tend to be associated with the wicked. Now, is James and Jesus, for that matter, condemning the wealthy because they're wealthy? No, that's good. You can say no. No, he's not. He loves everybody. In fact, he partners with wealthy people. He's supported by wealthy women in his ministry. Um, yeah, he, he, he stayed in homes of wealthy, pe- that, wealthy people. Uh, there are specific gen- sins that James addresses later in terms of hoarding and senseless luxury, defrauding, etc. This passage is a stern warning for those who are wealthy, though. It's a stern warning, which I would say includes myself, for sure, and the majority of our congregation. It's, it's a warning to, to remember, if we who have, if we who have much, we must remember. Remember what? We've got to remember our sinfulness. The rich, we've got to remember our, God's deliverance. The rich, the wealthy among us need to remember our neediness. And remember God's continued provision. We need to remember our natural temptation to sin. Not treat it like it's a thing in the past. We need to understand, especially when comfort finds us, how we live independent of God. How we're free to be without God. Because we believe wealth provides independence. We need to remember the tempting ways that we have oppressed others. Our natural, really unnatural ways that we tend to oppress others. And all of us do it. We have to remember the principalities that underlie wealth and money. These are not God. We have to remember our desperate need for God, which takes us to our second point. The poor among us, first point, must take hold of their spiritual inheritance in Christ. The second point is that the rich must remember our spiritual poverty in Christ. Those who are wealthy, and I'm not going to break out statistics. I think all of us have cars or homes in our heads, have an income that far exceeds uh, the top 10% of the world and likely the top five or five or some percent of even U.S. The rich must remember our spiritual poverty in Christ. James 1.10 says it this way, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. This humbling reality is a recognition that you and I are saved by a Savior and we continue to need to be saved by God. This also means we got to take hold of the truth that God is the only true reality that meets our deepest needs. Everything else is tertiary. It's just stuff. Everyone else is all that matters. If you've been saved, your eyes are opened. Not just the fact that God's the giver of good gifts, but that God is the greatest gift we have, that we share. And that any of the gifts that God gives us, they're just used for his kingdom purposes. That's where we find our greatest fulfillment, using our gifts for worship, using our gifts for work, for rest indeed, for evangelization, sharing the good news, for discipleship, for mission, for fun, yes. But his priorities must take hold of our priorities. So, 
Yeah, poverty is a real epidemic in this world. One that God wants to mend, one that God wants to use us to mend. But what is spiritual poverty per se? That's a term you're throwing around. I don't know this term. Spiritual poverty is this. It's a, it's a quality of the heart where and when we recognize our neediness, which is our soul dependence on God. Spiritual poverty also is the freedom to let go of every attachment that is not God. Our positions, our possessions, our accumulations, what we have. Again, spiritual poverty is the quality of our heart, one in where we recognize our neediness, our sinfulness, our soul dependence on God. And it's also the freedom to let go of every attachment that is not God, to let go, to surrender our work and her many labors, to let go, to release our possessions, our positions, our ownerships and securities, to let go of our false sense of immortality. That's what spiritual poverty is, in order to be freely given to others for this season that we have. When times are tough, or you're going through an issue, or the circumstances seem off, do you ever lay in bed and you think, man, what's going on? Is God trying to show me something here? Is he trying to teach me a lesson? Is God punishing me? By the way, I, I struggle with that at times. I need to like verbalize that out loud and talk to God about that. Does you ever have that where you're just like thinking like, man, what, what's going on here? God, are you trying to show me something? What's interesting about that is that when times are get good, we can believe the opposite we can believe that we have some sort of special favor in our lives. Terms like anointing or blessing gets thrown around a lot in church. And granted, certainly we could be thankful. First Thessalonians 5 says, uh, what does it says? Uh, pray always, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances in God through Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God. However, when times are good, we can subtly believe that we are uniquely anointed by God, that you and I have God's favor. And this is paradoxically dangerous. Here's why. It's, it's the point where we think God has blessed us for our actions. And so we think like, okay, how do I continue having this anointing in my lives? Well, I'll just continue to do what comes natural to me. Earning, climbing, spending, enjoying God's favor. And when we say, yeah, it's just I'm going with my gut. I've been going with my gut because things are good. Then we become less and less dependent on God and less and less discerning. And more and more like agnostic or atheistic wealthy Christians in the church. It's stern language, but that is a temptation for all of us. At any rate, when we're less discerning, we may never consider the moral corruption that's going on with us and our wealth, the sin. And that's just something to pray about, all of us, myself included. I'm, I read this, this this morning, and I don't write my messages in the morning compared to what my buddies say, but sometimes I, I write it early on in the week, and I'm like, man, this was really good. I'm going to bring it up. Yeah, one hour a week, Andy. Christmas is like a double overtime week for you because it's two hours. 
Henry Nowen, my second favorite priest, Father Masterson, St. Anne's and Bethany Beach, my first. He writes this, God's love blows where it pleases. It's an homage to John 3. God cannot be understood. He cannot be grasped by the human mind. The truth escapes our human capacities. The only way to come close to it where this love blows is by a constant emphasis on the limitations of our human capacities to have or hold the truth. We can neither explain God nor his presence in history. As soon as we identify God with any specific event or situation in the context of our conversation, that's God's favor and or God's punishment or punitive cursing. When we identify God with any specific situation, our financial circumstances, we play God and distort the truth. We only can be faithful in our affirmation, the truth that God has not deserted us, but calls us in the middle of all the unexplainable absurdities of life. This includes the absurdity of poverty as well as the absurdity of wealth and the disparities that exist. It's crazy how much we have. You ever think about that, how nuts we have, how much we have? It's nuts. And if we have more, we have to remember that we're, we're deeply loved sinners who have this gift for a season in order to invest in things that matter. Let me back up again. If I'm poor and I can't seem to shake my circumstances, my spiritual disposition towards my financial situations is that I'm rich in Christ. That's a reminder of my dignity. That's a reminder of God's care for me, as well as God's provision. It's about nobility. If I am wealthy and fixate on my expenses or my budgets, my salary, my retirement, etc., hours, my spiritual disposition towards my financial situation should be this, that I am poor in Christ, a reminder of my sinfulness, God's priorities, and God's provision. Opportunity for humility. See how great this passage is before you talk about giving? It's just like taking a stock inside. Our spiritual poverty reminds us, like the poor that I've experienced when serving us, that we've been given bread, and this bread's an opportunity to be like, oh, dude, Susan, Barb, Courtney, Jen, Greg, Maddie, Sylvia, come, come have some bread with me. Come have some bread with me. Now, there's another stark noticing in verse 10, water time. Check the time. How's my time? Five after? We're doing okay. I can finish this. I'm rounding home. The rich will pass away like a wildflower. Wealth is fleeting. It's fleeting. The world operates in a way that it can take your money. That's how the world operates. Whenever you hear about great investments, there's a part of that that's operating in a way to take your money. I'm not saying don't invest, etc. But sometimes we can take precautions. Other times we cannot. Positions rise, positions fall, markets rise, markets fall. One who is wealthy today may just be getting by tomorrow. Circumstances out of our control can deplete our financial foundations. And even if not, the money that we invest in the generations that go beyond us can just lose it. 
very quickly can blow it. Worldly wealth is fleeting. And I'm sure you've heard stories of that. I'm sure you've heard stories about how worldly wealth is fleeting. I think conversely, do we ever think about how the good times diminish our faith or dependence on God? How when things are good, we become less and less prayerful, less and less mindful, less and less servants. No matter what we have or what we don't have, these questions really bring us to our last point. That everyone must realize that we're ultimately just renting in this world. Every one of us must realize, no matter what we have, you guys know I'm working on my house right now. I'm like taking a lot of pride in that. It's, it's under our name, but it's not. We're all just renting. We're all just renting in this world. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. The same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Though this seems to be repeating what I just talked about, there is a spiritual principle for us in the church that I want to expound upon. If this interpretation is correct, if this is written to wealthy Christians and poor Christians, then we have to take note that there will be people in the church who are comparatively well-off. And there will be people in the church who are comparatively on harder times. That reality exists in the church. That's where the comparison must stop. That's where the comparison must stop. Each person that is here has a gift to bring to the table. We must recognize that we're renting and that wealth is fleeting. And instead of classifying people, and we are tempted to classify people. Oh, that person has a gift of generosity. That person has a gift of mercy. Why don't we just recognize each person as a gift? So that in that season, the one who's currently able is able to say this, God is good, how can I help out? And at the same time, the one who may be in a season of need can also say, God is good, I can sure use the help. Thanks. Without pretense, without any acknowledgement. And in this wondrous interaction, we'll recognize that both parties receive so much. And we can begin to talk about finances, which we will talk about later on in the letter in chapters four and five, a couple months from now, uh, about these realities. We could talk about finances and giving without pretense. We could talk about it without embarrassment. We can talk about it without arrogance. Because when you're renting, there's this wondrous thing where like, you don't have to control everything. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't have to control everything. I'm just renting as well as that awesome reality that you got a place over your head for the night. And that's awesome. More importantly, we can begin to dream about what God wants us to do with our finances. We can dream again about investing in the things that will last. With that, I don't do this much. I don't do this much. But I've sensed an opportunity today to talk to my men for a minute. Women, of course, you can listen in. But I felt like an opportunity to talk to men today. Uh, I wanted to talk about 
us men and our toys. And our toys. We can spend a lot of waking minutes dreaming about our toys, a lot of hours daydreaming, a lot of time thinking about it, whether it's a new ride, a new board, uh, basketball shoes, a bigger barbecue, a few more records, that quiet cat, urban blue electric e-bike. You know what I'm talking about. That's just like my list. You know what I mean? That's my list. I'm not talking about anybody else. We think about this stuff. And when we think about that stuff, men, it robs our ability to dream. It robs our ability to dream, to return to the true dreams that we had when we were kids. Six out of seven times, those toys are not going to fill us. They're not going to fill that true longing we have. They're not. That new car, it's not. They're not going to be the answers we're looking for. They're not going to be the rest that we need. They're not going to fulfill that intimacy that we desire. We think they do, but they won't. Those longings, those answers, that rest, the intimacy are found in God and his calling in our lives. Now, that may be applicable to my sisters here, but us boys and our toys, it's an issue. The world markets toys to us like it's nothing else, and we think about them, and it robs our ability to dream. All of us need to dream bigger dreams. All of us need to dream these bigger dreams. Amen? So the next steps for this message, again, I kind of like, I'm thinking about this year, like ordering in different ways, but our individual next step is, what is something that we can go without in order to live more freely? And then try it. Something we can go without. And then the conversations we can have with our crew, if you're hanging out at Laura's house on Tuesday night in Encinitas, um, it's a, uh, you can share a kingdom investment that's currently a dream in your life. What if I don't have that? Well, then that's an opportunity to dream. What a great opportunity. And then missionally, above your current giving, I shouldn't have to write that, but I'm going to, invest in a kingdom cause, whether that's organized or not organized. It's your opportunity to dream. Mine as well. So with that, I'm going to pray and invite the band up. <clears throat> Lord, I, uh, I really am struck by this message. I thank you for the freedom that we don't have to be forced to talk about this, but we can take a time just to see where we're at. And Lord, thank you that you're always calling us, that you call the poor and the rich alike. And that when you call us, you give us a vision for something bigger. So God, would you...